to Canada and the World. I'm your host, Besma Momani, professor here at the Balsley School of International Affairs and the University of Waterloo and a senior fellow at CG. Uh, in this episode, we'll be talking about a very heavy topic. Uh, we'll be talking about the genocide of Tutsis in Rwanda. We are just past the anniversary. Uh, April 7, 1994 was the start of this awful genocide. And I have four guests with me to tackle this complex topic. Uh, in studio, I have Dr. Timothy Donay. Tim is a colleague here at the Balsley School of International Affairs, Associate Professor in Department of Global Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University and Director of our fantastic MIP program. I also have in studio here with me Eric Tangwe, who is a PhD student at the Balsley School and Wilfrid Laurier and has worked on UN peacekeeping and other great topics. And on the line, I have two fantastic guests, Dr. Regine King, who is an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Social Work, University of Calgary and adjunct professor in the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Manitoba, and she's joining us from Calgary. And I have Alan Thompson, who is a CG senior fellow and has a new book coming out called Media and Mass Atrocity, and it is about the Rwandan genocide and beyond. And of course, Alan is a faculty member at Carleton University School of Journalism and Communication, was for 17 years with the Toronto Star, and as I say, my favorite liberal uh, candidate in the upcoming election. So thank you everybody for being here to talk about a very, I think, uh, somber but important topic. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks, Basma. Thank you. So, Alan, let me start with you. You're a journalist who, in the book, talk about your first approach to this uh, awful topic and had been uh, just coming to Rwanda a few years after the genocide and has visited many times after that, for those who may not have the deep memories that many of us do or are young, or a lot of our audience are young and may have been born after 1994, can you give us a background on what exactly happened? Yeah, and, and I mean, with respect, I think we'll come to Regine to hear from a Rwandan national who has lived this experience. But I, I come to this from the point of view of a journalist. Uh, I went to Rwanda in 1996 after the fact. But I was covering foreign affairs for the Toronto Star newspaper in 1994. And quite frankly, I, I should have been in Rwanda. And I think if I had simply volunteered to my editor, please put me on a plane and, and fly me to Rwanda, they would have done so. So I've always felt a bit ashamed that, like most people, I was uh, not paying enough attention in 1994. Uh, these events, most people will agree, the events were triggered the evening of April the 6th. So we are coming up to the 25th anniversary of this, this weekend. April 6th, the plane carrying the Rwandan president at the time, Juvenile Javier Imana, was shot down. And uh, it's pretty much agreed that over the course of that evening and certainly through the night, uh, death squads moved into the streets in Kigali and, and began to kill people and began what in retrospect, we now see was a 100-day uh, organized campaign, a genocide. And it is formally in Rwanda in particular referred to as the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. Uh, I think those of us who are observing from, from elsewhere often do use a sort of a shorthand and refer to the Rwanda genocide. And again, I come at this as a journalist. This was probably one of the most important news events of the last century, and yet somehow, remarkably, news media at the time didn't fully grasp or capture what was happening in Rwanda, certainly not for a long time. And 
I can go into a lot more detail later, but there are a lot of complex reasons for that. But in a sense, we just weren't paying very close attention. Even when we did start to follow what was happening in Rwanda, we didn't seem to understand what we were seeing. We didn't grasp that this was genocide, a genocide really grafted onto an ongoing civil war. And for the most part, news media fell back on a sort of a a formula, a template of African tribal warfare. And that's largely what people were told that they were seeing. And it took quite a while before the news media fully grasped what was happening on the ground. And by that point, the moment for any meaningful international intervention had passed and and the events unfolded as they would in the next 100 days with 800,000 to a million people killed. Yes, and you know you pointed this out, and of course uh, we want to get Regine on this, but as you noted, uh, perhaps 800,000 to a million civilians uh, were killed in the genocide of Tutsis in Rwanda at the, at the hands of the Hutu-backed government. And of course, uh, it resulted in an enormous refugee crisis as well, and is really seared in so many memories as also a failure of the international community from the United Nations to even the media and many, many Western governments complicit and really just turning their their backs. Uh, Regine, talk to us about uh, how you remember this atrocity and some of the things that you're working on in sort of the post-genocide period. Yes, uh, it's been now 25 years after the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. The memories, uh, the most vivid memories don't fade away. Uh, I can easily recall uh, what was happening on the morning of April 7. I can uh, recall uh, the morning my parental home was attacked. Uh, I can recall uh, the voices and the messages uh, that came from uh, people in my family, friends, and others who had gathered with us uh, seeking some kind of group protection. Uh, because uh, we are talking about what we see as 96% of the population uh, who were provided arms, who were provided media uh, to hunt down only 14% of the population. So I, I recall so many of the things that happened during that time. Uh, many of them, uh, you see them on, uh, have been made available uh, through satellites. Uh, but for us, these were visual images of the people, of the bodies, of uh, the noises, of the chants uh, that uh, we were experiencing uh, firsthand. For me, surviving the genocide uh, came with a strong uh, meaning or purpose to my life. I feel like um, <laughs> the fact that I was spared uh, with my limbs intact, I can say if psychologically or emotionally uh, I was feeling strong at the time, uh, but uh, uh, finding myself alive uh, with some level of education, which was denied to many other Tutsis, came with responsibility for me to not only tell the story of my people, but also to try to understand uh, this concept and events of uh, mass atrocities and genocide. And that's what I have spent the last 25 years, not just to understand uh, theoretically, but also to find ways uh, to prevent future violence and if possible, uh, help those 
who are not able to prevent it before it occurs to them. Regine, you have a very powerful article coming out in Open Canada. And of course, you've done so much work on both, you know, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, trying to provide cross-cultural refugee mental health, even in Canada. What do you tell, you know, average Canadians about the importance of the kind of work that you do in thinking about how to live back together again in a post-genocide Rwanda? Well, the kind of work I am involved in, I, uh, to me, it started being uh, uh, my uh, uh, personal research interest in what was happening in Rwanda after the genocide, because uh, on the one hand, uh, people could just easily throw their hands in the air and give up. Uh, I saw hope in Rwanda. Uh, I saw people who were very committed. Uh, I saw people who actually uh, became very creative in, and innovative in responding to uh, what the world witnessed in '94, um, And that uh, gave me the courage to understand not only what happens to people who have gone through genocide, because I think after my move to Canada in 2000, and working with uh, uh, women fleeing domestic violence, uh, working with street youth who had left their homes to, and they decided to be on the streets, uh, I came to understand that, yes, we have these big events of uh, genocide, but what we don't pay attention to is that there are small pieces of genocide uh, that happens in day-to-day life, I would say, across the globe, unfortunately, but also that it can also be seen in Canada. Um, and uh, most of the time we feel like these must be individual problems, and they are not. If we look at the women who are being murdered by their uh, spouses, that's not just a single case. Uh, if we hear the historical legacy of what happened to indigenous people uh, in Canada and in the US and in other Western countries, these are acts of genocides. Uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, the genocide that took the lives of uh, Tutsi in Rwanda, it's not a Rwandan event. It's a global event. And we better be equipped and learn on how to prevent it if we can, or to intervene as soon as possible when we hear things happening and not close our eyes because they are not in our backyards. Yes, thank you, Regine. Um, Tim, let me turn to you. Of course, so much of what uh, Regine reflected on um, has shaken, shaken up the international community, probably not nearly as much as it should have. But principles like the responsibility to protect uh, and other sort of international commitments to say never again have been born. But of course, there have been many atrocities since then. Um, and I you know, can't help but think of, for example, what happened in Syria is yet another you know, slaughter that really was uh, forgotten by the international community. Let me ask you, because your work increasingly is moving in uh, ways of talking about also how to protect civilians. And where do you see the role for the international community? Where do you see the opportunity and the potential for us to start having these kinds of honest conversations about really, truly never again? Well, let me start where uh, where Alan ended up. I mean, this was a, a monumental failure on the part of the international community. Uh, not only did we not respond, we uh, collectively, but uh, there was in fact a peacekeeping mission on the ground 
the majority of which was withdrawn as the genocide began to unfold. So in many ways, the last 25 years has been uh, an ongoing effort within the international community, uh, and and Rwanda prompted a, a very clear existential crisis uh, within the UN system to try to close this gap between the, the promise of protection uh, and the actual reality of being able to protect people on the ground in situations uh, like Rwanda, uh, like Syria, like South Sudan, like the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I think, unfortunately, we are still seeing this significant gap between what we would like to see happen in terms of, of a better world and more uh, adequate resources to fulfilling humanitarian promises and uh, the reality that there is still a long way to go to ensure that Rwanda doesn't happen again. Eric and I have just been working on a paper on protection of civilian issues in the context of peace operations. And the reality is that, that peace missions are increasingly given these ambitious mandates to protect civilians, but in reality, the budgetary pressures are such now that they simply don't have the resources. So in many ways, the question, or if we ask the question, if Rwanda, another situation like what happened in Rwanda in 1994 was to happen again, are we prepared? Uh, I'm not sure the answer is a very optimistic one at the moment. Yeah, that's really quite sad. Eric, your work again is very much fresh on this. Uh, what do you have to add? Um, I think what I would add to that is that there's, I don't know if I would call it a growing consensus yet, but there is a movement within uh, the scholarship and the, the practical community working on peacekeeping and protection of civilian issues, uh, that the role of the international community should possibly be to facilitate what Regine was mentioning in terms of innovative strategies on the ground to deal with these tragic events. Um, there's an increasing move towards recognizing that um, peace can't be enforced uh, at the tip of a gun in uh, the absence of longer term political strategies. And so the Hippo report, which came out in 2015, advocated for empowering self-protection strategies, moving sort of towards an idea of protecting with rather than protecting from uh, enabling local agency and that kind of thing. But as Tim mentioned, the downward budgetary pressures that the UN is currently facing make such strategies which are inherently expensive. Uh, engaging with communities is expensive and time-consuming. Uh, it makes these, these sort of longer-term goals of sustaining peace a little bit less likely. Yeah, thank you, Eric. You know, Alan, I want to turn to you because um, your book is about the media and uh, how this was covered. And of course, uh, the theme in your book is how the media should have done better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can't help but feel that we, some of us, may have made excuses saying, well, you know, there wasn't social media then, there wasn't 24-hour news channel then like we do have now. I mean, certainly if this happened today, the international community would be awake and would be ringing the alarm bells, right? Because we now have this instant feed of media on our, on our phones almost in real time. But of course, that's not true because the reality is we have had awful, awful, uh, you know, atrocities and mass murders since then, and nothing gets done. So let me ask you, I mean, you have in this book, this great quote of the theme of this book is about understanding the terrain where media and mass atrocity meet. So what do we learn from your book about this? Well, just to go back for a sec, I think Regine makes a really interesting point, And maybe it was kind of subtle. Uh, when she's points out, let's not refer to this as the Rwandan genocide. It's not a genocide of Rwandans per se. It's a, it's a genocide that occurred in Rwanda. 
And just that slight subtlety tells us a lot about the way we we look at these events and and the way media looks at them and brings them to us. This is something happening very far away in a remote location. And somehow it's as if it's removed from our lives. And we first of all have to realize this, this event happened on our planet. This event involved uh, hundreds of thousands of human beings being killed. So th- this is our concern. Uh, and yet we, we saw it in 1994. There was as much attention to the death of the rock star Kurt Cobain and uh, later on the trial of O.J. Simpson. You know, other events distracted us. The international news media were not able to make us care deeply about Rwanda. Hate media in Rwanda were compromised and were essentially participating in the events, fostering the killing. So sort of flash forward uh, 25 years and the the really dramatic changes in the media landscape. Uh, Social media did not exist at the time of Rwanda. I think Regine would marvel at this. Just imagine if people in the streets of Rwanda in 1994 were all carrying cameras and international upload satellite devices in their hands, which they do now. People carry iPhones with cameras. These events could be captured. We would have could potentially have had hundreds of thousands of instances of video uploads flashing in front of our eyes. But in some respects, we do now. We do have that. When you look at Syria, a very interesting stat I came across the other day. In the case of the Syrian civil war and the atrocities there, there are more minutes of video that have been uploaded to social media, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, more minutes of video captured in Syria than there are or where minutes in real time. So that conflict exists more on social media than it did in reality, in a sense. And yet for all of that flood of information, much of it user-generated content from eyewitnesses, we still, maybe we went a little bit further. We, we drew a red line in Syria, but then when it was crossed repeatedly, nothing happened. And, you know, there is an argument to be made that despite the, the dramatic evolution in media technology, we still see these events as far away. We still find it difficult to, to relate to them as part of our lives. And I think in the rare instances where we really connect, it's when a professional storyteller has been able to capture images, but also capture the, the subtext and the background that tells us what we're seeing. And, and we identify, when we can identify with the human beings in those images, they're much, much more powerful. And, and that is still kind of the core of what we try to teach to journalism students is the power of story, you know, being able to relate human experience to your audiences. But the sad reality is 25 years later, some of the most effective users of social media in these contexts are the bad guys, the perpetrators of these atrocities. ISIS probably had a a better media production capacity than many news organizations at its peak. So the terrain has changed, but there's still some really troubling issues around media and, and mass atrocity. Absolutely. Regine, um, you have done so much work in trying to document the process of individual healing and social transformation in post-genocide Rwanda. What do you try to do in your work to remind people to obviously continue to respect and give 
voice to so many people. How do you do that? And how do you, as an academic, as a Rwandan yourself, uh, manage this? I mean, how do you handle this enormous burden, I must imagine, that you have to face? Yeah. Uh, as you are asking the question, I'm uh, almost like, uh, if you don't mind, uh, if I can just start with maybe uh, one or two comments, uh, maybe to say that uh, maybe uh, promoting peace is it more expensive? Uh, I would say no. <laughs> I think countries spend billions and billions on violence, on guns, on planes, on everything that is involved in the military is very expensive. So I think uh, the world just chooses not to look for non-violent options. Uh, and I wanted to comment on the notion of um, the role of uh, media and uh, why, how come that the international community didn't intervene? I think uh, a number of people have commented on this. I'm not going to repeat it, but uh, I think Romeo Dareri, who was in Rwanda, uh, states it very, very clearly that the world didn't intervene because they didn't see personal interest into the country. Uh, they didn't intervene because it was another African country of black people. Uh, and I will agree with him because uh, during the Second World War, the media was not as advanced as it was in 94. And yet we saw a mass response of Canadians, Americans, people from Britain, uh, responding to what was happening in Germany and in other countries of Europe. So I think uh, uh, really the notion of apathy, if we are to talk about the prevention of future violence, uh, we need to work very hard on the notion of apathy, uh, where we don't identify with those who are in suffering. And that leads me to your question, <laughs> uh, which was about the kind of work I have been doing. Uh, really, the work I have been doing is uh, uh, focuses on people who have that passion, uh, who are aware that uh, suffering has taken place, and who are willing to actually uh, do something about it. Uh, most of the people who ha have attended uh, the approach I have been investigating uh, are people who feel like they are so overwhelmed by the emotions of what they witnessed either during the genocide or afterwards or in other contexts, and they apply to join the program. Uh, the program has helped to deal with not only with uh, individual losses, but also the collective uh, losses of uh, even like being feeling socially isolated while uh, living in the so-called community. So these are people who have uh, really moved forward to apply for the intervention. And uh, what has been very uh, amazing and for me eye-opening is how the people who go through their personal healing with the support of others in the groups uh, make decisions to go out and be the ones to change the issues of violence and conflict and emotional suffering uh, in their own families and communities, and uh, who are now taking on uh, a national agenda to actually do what we are doing now, to speak on the national radio and uh, televisions, uh, to raise awareness about the importance of processing whatever it is that hurts us so that we don't end up hurting others. And these are processes that have resulted uh, really uh, reuniting and uh, forgiveness and the reconciliation processes that follow. 
Thank you. Uh, that is uh, that is a lot to obviously uh, digest for anyone. Uh, Tim and Eric, uh, final thoughts. Where do we need to go as an international community from here? Well, I think Regine's points about em- finding empathy uh, is is an important one. Finding solidarity. Uh, I think one of the one of the issues now in the sort of thinking about the broader international community is that there's there's very much a turn inward among a lot of the more important powers of the international system. The United States, uh, preoccupied with domestic affairs. Uh, Great Britain is preoccupied with the Brexit debacle. Uh, even in Canada, I mean, several years ago, the Prime Minister declared that Canada was going to be back in terms of uh, progressive multilateralism. Peacekeeping was going to be a centerpiece of our foreign policy. Uh, we have made commitments to Mali, but that commitment is about to expire, and it's not clear where uh, where we're going forward from there. So I, I, th- I think there needs to be a real careful rethink about the kind of structural issues that we face in terms of the international community. I think Regine is right. I think there's been a lot of uh, good work that's happened at the individual level in terms of thinking about peace building and reconciliation. Uh, having worked on questions of peace building for the past 20 or 25 years, I'm not sure we've made as much progress at the structural level in terms of thinking about how the relationship between states and societies, uh, citizens and governments in terms of how to rebuild effectively after conflict. So, so there's a great deal left to do, I think, to kind of come to terms with some of these issues. Yeah. Eric, final thoughts? Yeah, just... I suppose to respond to Regine, um, I may have miscommunicated in my last statement, but um, I just wanted to clarify that I wasn't suggesting that building peace is more expensive than uh, military efforts. I I was just trying to say that currently, because there are such uh, financial issues within the United Nations system, there's there's sort of a, a divide on how to respond to conflict, and there's a, a movement towards sort of more robust action that focuses on military force. Uh, And I was just suggesting that uh, in order to build long-term sustainable peace, what's needed is to actually engage with local communities uh, whose knowledge and expertise is what can sort of build the foundation for a future just society. And um, it seems like that effort is maybe being sidetracked currently within the UN just due to financial pressure. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, everyone, for um, talking about this very important topic. We've, of course, only scratched the surface, and so I encourage everybody to read uh, Regine's uh, forthcoming article coming out soon on Open Canada, and, of course, Alan's edited book here on media and mass atrocity, uh, which is edited by Alan and, of course, available for purchase now on the CG website, cgonline.org. And we will be waiting and anticipating uh, your collective effort, Eric and uh, Tim, on uh, a book on protecting civilians. Thank you, everybody. I'm Dr. Andrew Thompson, Program Officer at the Balsi School of International Affairs. The Canada and World Podcast is produced by the Balsi School of International Affairs and opencanada.org. Please subscribe to this podcast. The latest episode will be downloaded right to your phone so you don't miss an episode and can listen on the go. Canada and the World can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and your favorite Android podcasting apps. If you'd like to know more about the Balsi School and our graduate programs, please visit balsyschool.ca and feel free to reach out to us.